So um, I, I arrived at church this morning. For those of you who are newer, um, I'm the pastor uh, here at the table. I've been gone for a while. I, I was thinking I haven't preached in like four weeks. I may have forgotten how, or I may just ramble on aimlessly. We'll see. Um, but this is this is a true story. I got uh, I got to church this morning, and one of the one of our uh, one of our team members was there, and he said, I, "I have something to tell you. I was thinking about it on the way to church this morning, um, and I don't want you to take it the wrong way." Just just a little advice. That normally means you're probably going to take it the wrong way, right? Like it's got, it's, so I kind of braced myself, and he's like, um, you, you've been gone for a long time. And I was like, yeah, yeah I have. Um, and, and then he's like, uh, the church ran fine without you. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Um, but actually, that was the, the best compliment anyone could have given me, um, because from the beginning, when we decided to start the table, um, when we felt called by God to start the table uh, around uh, our, our coffee table in our living room, um, we always wanted to be about the community and not just about a few people. Um, and so one of the things I love about this community is how it, everyone pitches in to make it possible. Um, and we are, we are better together. Um, and so I'm just really grateful for everyone who makes the table possible. Pastor Angela and her team here are just incredible. Um, but one of the ways that we strengthen that community is by coming together once a year for an all-church retreat. Uh, on Sundays, it's a bit difficult to really get to know people very well um, because you're rushing in and out, and some of you are in community groups and some of you aren't. Um, and we really want to take time once a year to really build us as a community. Um, and so we do that through an all-church retreat called Reset. Um, we get away to uh, to area uh, Quarryville, uh, Pennsylvania, which is in Lancaster County, and it's just a great time to get into the woods during October when the leaves are changing and it's cr the mornings are crisp. I can't talk. Um, I told you it's been four weeks. The leaves are changing and the air is crisp, and there may or may not be hot apple cider. This was like how I was thinking about it when I was preparing. Like I'm really excited to get out of the city, and I'm excited for fall. So the whole pitch is built around that. Um, in the past, uh, these retreats have been really built around developing leaders, um, and there will be a component of that this time. Um, but also, this, this particular retreat, we're really putting an emphasis on your own personal spiritual growth. Um, I think that God wants to do something um, in and through you, uh, and, and that starts with like examining where you are with God. And so this is going to be an incredible time of spiritual growth for us as a community. There'll be some corporate moments where we'll come together for prayer and for worship, um, but there'll also be some moments to gather as small groups. And then there's going to be a lot of time to just to hang out um, and do hay rides and bonfires and all the other fun things that you do when you go to the country. We'll probably even do s'mores. It's going to be a lot of fun. And if you went last year, you know that we were a bit over-programmed. That's because they let me um, attend the planning meeting. And I knew it might be a problem when people were literally running from one session to the next. Like, they're like, I don't have time to get coffee. I got to get to the next session. And I was like, I, we may have over-programmed this. So this time, they won't let me be a part of the schedule. Um, and, and we're really making sure we build a lot of time um, for people just to get to know each other. Um, so I'd really encourage you to be a part of that. Um, the other thing, I just want to kind of give you an overview of where we're going this fall. Uh, this is supposed to be kind of winding down uh, a series we've been doing called The Art of Neighboring. Um, but for a number of reasons, I've just really felt um, a burden for our community and for our country. And I feel there's a word that God wants me to, to share. Um, and so we're going to this, we won't do the Art of Neighboring this Sunday. And then next Sunday, we're returning to our series, The Year of Biblical Literacy, by moving from the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament 
um, we'll begin exploring um, the New Testament beginning with the life of Jesus, and we're starting a series called The Character of Christ. Um, and so we'll do that for a number of weeks, and then on October 8th, um, we will have Vision Sunday, just to kind of remind us exactly where we're going and who we are as a community, and then we'll go to retreat, um, and a lot of exciting things are going on. So anyway, that's kind of what's happening on the early part of this fall. Uh, let's pray, and then we can dive in. God, I thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for every person who um, is here this evening on this Labor Day weekend. Um, I pray that through the words that we read um, that were written down so many years ago, thousands of years ago, I pray that you would do something in our hearts and that we would look more like you and that you would strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been traveling quite a bit, which means I've been in airplanes. And one of the things you may not know about me is for a significant period of time, three or four years, um, I was a very nervous traveler, particularly a nervous flyer. Uh, and I don't really understand it. Like, I can't pinpoint a, a period in time when this happened. Um, as a kid, and actually as a young adult, I loved to fly. I would ask my parents to take me to the airport just so I could watch airplanes take off and land. And if there was ever an opportunity to fly somewhere, like, I would volunteer. Like, I'm your person. I want to be there. And part of it was just I loved the opportunity to fly. But then at some point, a couple of years ago, I became a very nervous flyer. Like, the person who sits next to you and like grips the, the armrest of the seat. And, and I've decided, like, I think I thought that by holding the seat rest strong enough, like, or hard enough, that I would somehow control the airplane. I was kind of like Clark Kent keeping the airplane in the air. Uh, and, and Charla hated traveling with me during this period because, you know, she'd try to talk to me or tap me on the shoulder and I'd be like, leave me alone. I'm keeping the airplane afloat, right? Like, I really, like, it was this weird thing. And, and, and during this period of time, and incidentally, like one day I flew and it was just gone. Right? It wasn't afraid anymore. But for like two to three years, it was a big deal. Um, and anyway, during that period of time, I would, I would watch the, uh, the seatbelt light really closely. And, and in case you didn't know, there's three times the seatbelt light comes on. Um, the first time is when the, when, the, when the airplane's taking off. And that's a known variable, right? Like, you know what's going to happen. I mean, you kind of know how the plane feels. I'd listen to every sound. Wait, what's that noise? Is that supposed to happen? I don't remember that happening the last time we took off. But when the seatbelt comes on first time, it's because you're taking off and you put all your stuff away. And then the, the last time the seatbelt light comes on is right before you land. And once again, I kind of know what's going to happen. But, but in flight, the seatbelt light also comes on. And that normally means you're about ready to hit turbulence, or as the pilots would say, chop. And, and that can be, a, you never know what you're going to experience. It could just be a few bumps, or it could be like the moment I was flying from where's Oklahoma City to San Antonio, and the flight, the turbulence was so bad that the pilot came on the air, and, or on the speaker, and said, yee-haw, while the lady next to me screamed as she like bounced out of her seat. No joke. <laughs> Oddly, that was not when I got into my fear of flying. Um, it was Southwest Airlines. They have a little freer. Um, I can't imagine like a United flight, like the pilot saying, yeah, I don't you know. That's, that's neither here nor there. The point being, when that fastened seatbelt light comes on, you really don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what to expect. Um, and I kind of feel like... Uh, I, my analogies around flying, because I, I thought about this sermon while I was flying, but I kind of feel like our country is, is in one of those moments where the fastened seatbelt light has come on. Um, 
and we don't really know what to expect, right? This could just be a little bit of chop, just a little bit of turbulence, um, or this could be um, a, really some severe weather that we're going through. And, and as I was preparing, there are all these different things that I wanted to talk about. I mean, I want to talk about Hurricane Harvey. Um, I want to talk about the, the city that I grew up in. I, I, I was junior high in high school. I mean, the longest period of my life was spent in Houston, Texas. Um, I, when I sign online, I see my friends' uh, homes are flooded and their lives are completely destroyed. Um, I want to talk about um, I want to talk about white supremacy, and uh, the fact that we have Nazis, uh, neo-Nazis, marching on our streets without being ashamed. Right? That's a weird thing. Last time I checked, being a Nazi was like a bad thing. Like we couldn't agree on much, but we agreed we didn't like the Nazis. Like seen all the old war movies. I want to talk about the Nashville statement, something which I hadn't even really thought that much about until I was at a, um, I was at a, a party last night and I was talking to a therapist. I tend to find therapists at parties because then I can like get free therapy, and um, and uh, you know revealing, you know talking to him about you know, all the problems in life, my childhood. No, um, and, and as I was talking to him, I just mentioned offhandedly the Nashville statement, um, which is a very harsh statement about LGBT people. Um, in the church that both conservative, uh, from conservative to liberal um, leaders have kind of condemned. Um, but he told me as we were talking, and I was kind of just brushing it off, you know, it's kind of a fringe group in this statement, and he said, um, young people will die because of this. He's like, I talk to these kids on a regular basis in my office, and he's like, they will die. That's serious. And so I want to talk about that, and there's all these things that I want to talk about. And like I said, this could be just a short bump. Maybe we're just going through a crazy period, but there's all this uncertainty. Like, will the stock market crash? Will, will white supremacy continue to surge? Will we get in a war with North Korea? Um, that was like the, what I woke up to this morning was that this crazy guy across the world has, has tested another nuclear weapon. Will our president be indicted? Right? There are all these questions that we don't know. And this is just like big meta stuff. This is global stuff or countrywide stuff. I'm not even beginning to think of the turbulence and the uncertainty that you're experiencing in your own life. I mean, some of you got a call this week that has really unsettled you. Maybe it was from a doctor, or maybe your job is at risk, or maybe you are in a relationship, your, your spouse, um, and you are just not seeing eye to eye, and you don't know if you can make it. A lot of us are in moments in our lives where the fastened seatbelt light has come on and we are facing turbulence and there is an uncertainty about what lays ahead. And, and the, the reason that I hate turbulence, the reason I hate flying or hated flying for a while is because I wasn't in control. One of the therapists at a party helped me figure that out, right? Like that, <laughs> that was the reason I was so freaked out because I love to control things, which is why I was gripping the seat, like in some way holding that plane in the air through the sheer power of my will. Um, I want to be in control. We all want to be in control. And that's what bothers us about uncertainty is, is in these moments, it reminds us that we aren't in control. And more than a few of you have told me that this is a really anxious period in your life, in the life of your friends, and the life of your family. And so here's what I want to do this, this evening. I, I want to share some good news um, in the most cheesy, pastorly way that I know, and, and that's this, that Jesus has been through turbulence before. 
And Jesus is not caught off guard by turbulence. Jesus isn't surprised by turbulence. And the way that I know that, the reason that I know that is because most of Scripture was written both by and to people who were facing uncertainty and who were facing turbulence in their life. In fact, it's you need to know that the Bible is not just like this feel-good book written by people whose lives are going really well, but instead it is spoken to people who are going through some really difficult times. Like we forget, we forget that, that a chunk of the scripture was written during a period when all their friends and family were being carted off to a foreign land. Scripture was written at a time when there were violent political revolts and there were oppressive military powers marching through the streets. It, scripture was written at a time when Jesus' followers were being, were being killed simply because they followed Jesus. In Scripture, we read about this guy named Joseph who finds himself in a pit because his brothers had debated whether or not to kill him, and, but then they decided, you know what, the easiest thing to do is to dump him in a pit and let the animals and the sun do our job for us. And then what we discover, though, is that even in the midst of that, God was there with him and brings something beautiful and amazing out of the situation and ends up redeeming a people through that. Or King David, who is awakened one morning to find out that his own son, Absalom, is going to try to overthrow his rule, his empire, and the, the kingdom begins to split apart. Or the Apostle Paul, who wrote, like Angela said, two-thirds of the scripture. The Apostle Paul, his entire life is somehow wrapped around turbulence, whether it is being shipwrecked or in prison or being chased down by people who want to kill him. Not to mention, not to mention, this, this teenage woman who has an angel show up to her at this really random time and says, by the way, I know that you and your boyfriend or your fiance have never known each other, but um, you are pregnant. I mean, that's crazy. But yet, the good news is that in, in spite of all the craziness of these circumstances, in spite of all these stories we find in the Bible, like the common thread is that in the midst of the uncertainty, God is walking there with them, working to redeem and take what is broken and make something beautiful. The Bible is a book that reminds us that even when we're not in control, God is working to bring about good. Now, my natural inclination is life, in life is to tell you it is going to be okay, calm down, don't worry. The problem is that, that me, uh, a person of considerable privilege, like telling people who are facing some really difficult and uncertain times, and l literally some people are facing like whether they're safe, right? Whether people want to harm them. I, I just want to, oh, it'll be okay, it'll be fine. To which my wife um, has helped me understand this a lot because even just as a woman in the South, we lived in the South for a long time, she's like, that's easy for you to say because it normally is because they really like people like you. Um, She's like, but for me, it's not always okay. And so I, I, I'm not, I don't want to just say it's going to be okay. But what I do want to do is I want to share the words of the Apostle Paul. Um, so if you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Now, um, we forget that... Uh, we forget the backstory. So often we, we hear the stories preached... Um, from the New Testament in particular, but we forget the backstory. So Philippians was written not too long after um, Paul is on his way to Rome. And on his way to Rome, he's in a, a pro he reaches Malta, and his, he is shipwrecked. 
And so he is on his way to Rome, and then next thing he knows, he finds himself um, marooned on an island. Uh, he eventually makes it to Rome, but he arrives at Rome, in Rome at a time when Nero, who's a bit of a megalomaniac, um, Nero is in control. Now, um, my wife and I were uh, in Rome, and we went to Palatine Hill, I think I'm saying that right, which is, which is uh, the hill right next to the Colosseum, which is where all the emperor's palaces, um, emperor's, wherever they lived, yeah, palaces, I think that's right, um, the places they lived were. And um, the Caesar Augustus, you know, the guy that we hear in the story about uh, Jesus' birth, um, Augustus's palace was there, um, but, or the ruins, but his footprint of his palace is fairly small. And what, what we discovered was that every new emperor had to have like a bigger house. And so they just kept building bigger and bigger palaces. But, but it wasn't only emperors who lived on this hill, but also the aristocrats of Rome. And, and so um, uh, Nero comes along, and he, he says, I want a bigger and better house than everyone. But the problem was is that other people already had like, occupied the space around the house. Um, so imagine like you know, at the White House, the president decides he wants to build this massive complex, but yet you've got all these government buildings around it. You know, you'd have to take those out to expand. So Nero's kind of bummed out by this, and they won't sell because they're like, we like our house. And so what he, Nero decides to do, and I'm folksizing this, is that a word? Um, just a bit. But what Nero decides to do is, um, is burn them all down. Because there's this random, there's this random rule that if, there's, if it's, there's nothing occupying the land, even if it belongs to someone else, the government could seize it. And so Nero burns down half of Rome in order to burn down his neighbor's home so he can expand uh, his his palace. Well, as, as, as you might suspect, people get kind of frustrated by this and um, think it's a bit of an overreach on Nero's part. So what Nero decides to do then is he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not crazy. I didn't burn down your house. Um, and then he begins to look for a scapegoat. And there was this little sect of people who refused to swear allegiance to Rome. Um, they said, you know, Rome says there is no God but Caesar. And this crazy group of people keep saying there is no God but Jesus or but God. Um, uh, and, and so he's like, there's just a few of them. They're like this growing sect, but they're still not like big enough to defend themselves. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. It was the Christians who burned down Rome. He's a crazy guy. So, so the Philippians is written at a time when Nero has placed Paul in prison. So Paul makes it to Rome after being shipwrecked, and now he finds himself in a prison, which you can still go visit today. And it, it's a dark and dungy place where they literally, they let you down into the pit or the prison with, with a rope, um, because that's where you wanted to, you essentially wanted to disappear people. You wanted anyone to forget that they existed. And so Paul is writing the words that we're about to read from prison. And, and if he could get up out of the pit, he would still see on the top of this hill that Nero's massive palace is just hanging out and sitting there. Nero is still on the throne. And Paul writes these words. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and just in case you didn't hear me, and again I say rejoice. Paul, who's facing uncertainty, Paul, who's experiencing some severe turbulence in his own life, says, rejoice in the Lord always. In the good times and the bad times, again, I will say it, rejoice. And then Paul continues, and this verse, maybe more than any other verse, 
convicted me because he said, let your gentleness, let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. In spite of the chaos, in spite of the uncertainty, God hasn't gone everywhere, be, hasn't gone anywhere. Be known for your gentleness. And I think this made more, maybe more than anything else is one of the challenges that we're facing now. Because as the temperature has been raised on everything, it becomes very hard to be kind and gentle to those you disagree with. This week, um, we started 21 Days of Prayer, and we started it off by praying for um, our leaders in this country, our leaders in our, this country, in particular, um, our president. And because we're in Washington, D.C., and many of you live in the district, uh, it's just a more progressive group of people. Like, if we were to look at the, the politics of this room, you skew one way, and that means you probably didn't vote for the president. Um, at least a, a chunk of you didn't. Um, and uh, just based on like demographics of who lives in this city. And, and I got some text messages telling me that um, praying for the president was ridiculously hard. And they said as they were praying for the president, they had this overwhelming sense that God loved the president every bit as much as God loved them. We, we forget that sometimes in this polarized world where we begin to see the other as an enemy. We begin to see them as, we begin to other them. They're no longer a human, but they are just a person that we then project all of our hatred and our anger and our disgust upon. And in that climate, it becomes very hard to be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all, to everyone. What if we were known Christians, followers of Jesus, as being the most gentle and kind people around. Then Paul continues on. And this is where I think, like, I think he may have been on to something with the gentleness, but this next thing, I, I think Paul may be off, right? He says, don't be anxious about anything. Well, that is easy for you to say, Paul. Like, do you know what we're facing? Just say, don't be anxious. Okay, Paul, I'll turn off my anxiety. I was thinking, I was reminded of the story of Jesus in the boat. Remember, um, if you've been around church for a while, um, you may have heard the story that Jesus is, uh, and his disciples go out into the water, and while they're in the boat in the water, this crazy storm emerges, and like things are falling apart, and Jesus' disciples are flipping their lid. And Jesus, who didn't get enough sleep the night before, is in the back of the boat snoring. Um, and, and the disciples that finally get so nervous that they're like, we have the guy back here who could maybe like stop the storm and he's just sleeping, so let's wake him. He clearly doesn't know what's going on. And so they go and they wake Jesus frantically. I imagine that they like shake him like, Jesus, do you know what's going on? <laughs> Jesus kind of opens his eyes. What? Um, and then all Jesus says is, quiet, be still. And the storm ends. Then, the next thing Jesus does is he flips to the disciples. And maybe this is because he's still groggy and he's still a little bit upset about being awakened. But he says this, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Paul continues on. But in every situation, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, pre present your request to God. 
And I want to break this verse down because it's actually a bit hidden within this short verse. The first is, but, but in every situation, by prayer and petition. Petition is actually, I think, I do this sometimes, I like, I'll say it's a bad translation, and I'm thinking biblical scholars who have no way more about text translate it this way. But in my defense, other translations uh, translate it differently, and I just tend to like to preach out of the NIV. But other translations, if you have like a King James Version or an NRSV, it'll say by prayer and supplication, which gets slightly closer. But if you like dig down to the original meaning, the original Greek, it essentially means by prayer and plea or pre pleading prayer. It is praying and then like doubling down on your prayer. Like it is an urgent prayer. And so he says, in every situation, essentially by urgent prayer, by really like being, I don't know what the word I'm looking, by being really urgent. Let's just go with that. With thanksgiving, Paul says, present your request to God. And my first thought when I read through this is, well, yeah, but God already knows our request. And so I wondered if maybe there's something else a little bit deeper. And actually, what, what the word here is, is it, it is reveal. Reveal. Um, it's almost like revealing a mystery. Reveal your request to God. And, and what I think is going on here is Paul is not talking about the popcorn prayer that you pray in the moments when things are beginning to fall apart. Because what I like to do is make a bad decision because I decided to do it without checking with God first. And then when things are like falling apart, when the turbulence and the uncertainty are striking, then I like to say really quickly, hey God, can you please get me out of the situation? I, I, I could really use that right this moment. And what I think Paul is saying is, is that there's something deeper going on. It, it means to reveal the mystery of our request to, to unfold what we're experiencing both to God and to ourselves. See, part of prayer is going before God is not just revealing our needs to God, but is unearthing the fear that is inside you. Because fear can be a gift. Because when you explore what you are afraid of, you're able to get a little bit deeper. You're able to get a little bit deeper and find out what your deepest desires are, right? Why is it that you're afraid of? Why is that thing causing fear in your life? What are you really afraid of? If the absolute worst happens, what are you afraid of? And I think what Paul is trying to say here is pour out what's in you, what's in you, pour that out to God. Prayer should be the one moment in your life where you are most honest with God and with yourself. Some of us, I think, we think that we are protecting God, right? We don't want God to know quite how anxious we are or quite how pissed off we are. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but like, uh, we don't want God to know quite how like, upset we are. Because somehow we're protecting God. Listen, God can handle your anger. Like people have been upset with him before. And, um, and I think sometimes we aren't willing to be honest with ourselves about what our real fear is, about what our, where that anxiousness is coming from, about what we're actually feeling. And I think part of what Paul is saying is revealing what you're experiencing deep within inside. You're revealing it both to God and to yourself. Because fear is a gift. Because when you look at why you're feeling this way, it begins to, to give you a glimpse of your deepest desires. So, for example, if you are afraid, like if I'm talking to you and you're like, you know, I'm really nervous about not getting a job. And, um, and you're, I'm like, oh, you're afraid? You're like, oh, I wouldn't use the word I'm afraid. But then if I asked you, well, what happens like, if you don't get a job? Oh, 
yeah, I guess I'm afraid that people will think I'm a loser um, or that I'm not good enough or I'll have to go back home and they'll know that I failed or I'm afraid that maybe I won't be able to support myself. See, in that moment, you're, you're beginning to get just a bit below the surface, like what is really causing that anxiety. And what I believe happens in this moment, when you begin to dig down and begin to explore what really is going on underneath, and then you take that, often what you don't even realize, like sometimes we don't even realize at the surface what it's really driving, our fear or our anger or whatever it is that we're experiencing. And we take that, and then we offer that to God. And I think in those moments, as taking what's deep down and offering it to God, we hear God whisper in our ear, I can handle that. I've got that. I am here with you. I'd encourage you as you're praying in uncertainty, pray something like this, like, Lord, I need you to show up. And if you don't show up, I'm afraid this will happen. Like, be honest about what it is that you're you're, you're really worried about. Now, the Bible is not, and prayer is not, some secret method to get back in control. Right? Like I said, the reason I, I hated flying is because it reminded me that I am not in control. And the truth is, none of us are in control. We never are. In fact, um, we could, I used to like to get into arguments with people about free will, uh, free will versus determinism. And I always made the free will case. And, and then you start looking at the science and you realize that we only have like slivers of our lives that aren't predetermined, which then freaks me out. We're not in control. So much of our lives are already predetermined and there's so many things that are outside of our control. But if we take our fears and our anxiety and our powerlessness and place them in God's hands, God is able to say, I've got this. I'm with you. And then Paul continues on. He says, look, if you do this, the result will be peace. He says, and the peace of God, and this is, this is such a powerful statement, the peace of God which transcends all understanding. The peace of God, which it, it doesn't even make sense. The peace that God can offer is kind of a foolish peace. Right? It, it, if you try to rationalize it, and this is the problem, like we are, you are, you're a really smart group of people. Like you went to schools they won't even let me visit the campus of. Like, and you can rationalize and figure anything and reason anything out. But the peace that God offers, you can't break it down into its smallest parts. There's something that God offers us that we can't even make sense of. God gives us peace that transcends human understanding. And if we place our fear and uncertainty in God's hands, God will whisper and remind us that he is in control. And then Paul says this, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace guards your heart and your minds and your emotions and your thoughts. Because what ends up happening is when we become anxious, we turn internal. Everything becomes about us, and we are not able to engage with other people. We, we begin to walk, like, it's the whole fight or flight thing. We either like retreat or else we begin to punch out at other people. And Paul says that peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. 
Here's what I want to end with. Here's a few final words I want to say about prayer. Prayer isn't simply about changing things. I think the biggest mistake I made in my own spiritual journey is that I always thought that prayer was essentially about getting something from God. And there is a, a huge chunk of scripture which says part of prayer is taking our request to God and asking that God do something about it. The, right, the most powerful story is the one that Jesus tells of like the guy going to the door and knocking over and over and begging his friend to come bring bread. And Jesus saying, how much more would your heavenly father who, who loves you deeply not want good things for you? But, but prayer is not simply about changing things, but prayer is about changing you. It's about changing your heart. It's about changing your desires. It's about changing the way you react to a situation. See, for too long, like, I went with my long list of, you know, like, dear God, can you help, please help my friend? And can you please help me get a job? And can you please help that girl date me? And then can you please help that girl marry me? And then, and then it didn't happen. And so I blamed God. And honestly, began to pray less because I was like, why am I wasting my time? I asked God for this and this didn't happen. But prayer is also about us being changed. One of the moments I, I think this is most vividly illustrated is actually in the life of Jesus um, when he's on the Mount of Olives. And I just want to read this passage really quick. It says this, Jesus went out as usual. Right? This, is a, this is something Jesus did all the time, which I think is really fascinating. We, we sometimes so over-divinize Jesus. We make him, too, we make him like only divine, and we don't acknowledge the humanity of Jesus. The, the, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is fully human, just like us. Jesus has to have a prayer life and continue to keep his heart connected. And so he goes out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples follow him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And he said in anger, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And I think in this moment, Jesus is both asking God, like, if you have another way to go about this, like, this would be a really good moment to kind of let me know what that might be, or maybe change the trajectory. But also in this moment, Jesus is strengthened. His, his heart and his desires are being aligned with this mission that he has been called to. And he's given courage and strength for the task that he's been called to. I think we sometimes glaze over these passages because they're so human that we don't know what to do with it. The fact that Jesus, in the hours before he dies, is, is, is so anguished in prayer that he is sweating blood. Jesus is human like us. Jesus is, is praying, God, I need the strength to get through this. He is aligning his heart. Prayer is about asking God to move, yes, but prayer is also about allowing God to change us. And there's something powerful that takes place when we have a practice of whenever it is we're experiencing anxiety, whenever we're experiencing turbulence, whenever we're experiencing uncertainty in our lives, is saying, what's going on here? 
What am I really afraid of? What am I really anxious about? What am I really angry about? And then taking that and placing it in God's hand and asking that God would give us peace and assurance that God is walking with us in the midst of that uncertainty. That's one of the reasons we need to read scripture because we read story after story after story of people faced uncertainty and God was there with them. But as we do that, God begins us to begins to give us a sense of peace. Now, I wish I could tell you, and for some of you, maybe this will happen. I wish I could tell you it's a one-and-done event, right? You, you pray one time, hey, God, can you please give me a peace that transcends all understanding, and like, boom, all anxiety is gone. Now, maybe that happened for you. It has not happened for me. It is a daily practice, which I think is really interesting, that Jesus goes out as usual to this spot, and at, to- at the final moments of his life, he is still in prayer. It is this daily practice that we have to continue to bring that which makes us anxious and give it to God and ask that God continue to give us peace. The people, the way that I know that this works and that this, this, this is real is not because I read about these words, words from Paul. I mean, what's Paul know? I mean, he's like 2,000 years ago. He could have just, I mean, maybe we redacted it and we made him happy. I mean, Paul could have ended another way, really downer. I don't know. The way I know this is because um, I watched how my father lived. My father was the least anxious person that I knew, and I cannot count how many times I would wake early in the morning and walk into the living room and find him on his knees praying. I'm guessing those of you who have seen people have peace that passes all understanding, whether it's a friend or family member. If you dig far enough and talk to them very long, you begin to find that they have developed this way, this prayer life that allows them to have this peace. And I wish I could tell you that I have it all figured out, that I am the least anxious person that I know. I'm not. Um, I do know that that as a pastor and as a leader, the worst decisions that I've made, I've made out of anxiety. I've made because I've been afraid other people would be upset with me or be unhappy with me, and so I end up jumping ahead of what God is doing because I'm anxious. I think some of the worst decisions we make, we make out of fear and anxiety. If all you did is have this practice of the next time you were feeling fear or anxiety or anxiousness or anger, is just you just stop for a moment and offer that to God. One of the things, uh, one of the commitments we're making as a leadership of this church is that, that we are going to pray first. I mean, we care so much about this, we even have a hashtag, pray first. <clears throat> because in the past, in the past, what we've done is, like, we, we, we've, we made a move, and then, and then we prayed that God would help it to work. But now we want to pray before we make the decision. And then we want to pray while we implement that decision. And then we want to pray while we reflect on what we implemented. Right? That is going to, that, that's like, it's core to who we want to be as a community. We want to pray first. Um, and so I'd really challenge you during this 21 days of prayer to use this as a season where you begin to practice what it looks like to pray first. And so here's my challenge. When the fastened seatbelt light comes on, I challenge you to pray. Find a place to get along with God, to read scripture, to breathe deeply, and to open your innermost thoughts, to open those thoughts and those fears that you've been afraid to even let yourself think, to open those to God. And here's the questions I want to leave you with. In that moment, I want you to say, what is your greatest concern right now? What's, that, what's the biggest thing you're worried about? And then, if the worst happens, what are you afraid 
what are you afraid of is the worst? Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And in that moment, I want you to take that thing and offer it to God and ask that he will give you peace that passes all understanding. Would you pray with me? God, I feel like offering, um, offering up my anxiousness and anxiety is a constant journey. And, I, and, we, and we as a community and we as a city and we as a nation are feeling so much anxiety and anxiousness right now. And I pray that you would teach us, that you would teach us to come to you in prayer, that we would pray first. And then as we do and as we develop this habit and this practice, that you would begin to give us a peace that passes all understanding. And that because of this, that our love and our grace and our gentleness would be made known to all. And that they would see and experience the love that only you can give. Amen.